I'm Ken Canera, and this is Beyond Consulting, the only podcast focused on your life, health, and wealth after consulting. This week, we welcome Seanick Roy to the studio. Seanick is the founder and CEO of Yellowdig. Seanick, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Ken, good to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming. I know we've known each other for quite a while, but I thought maybe just for the listeners that aren't so familiar with you, if you could just maybe start by just giving kind of a quick recap of your career and how you got here. Well, I mean, I have had a long and interesting career to kind of becoming a startup founder, which I you know running Yellow League today. So, you know, Ken, we were together at Booz. It was probably like 10 or 15 years back now. Yeah, I think so. It's been a while. So quick recap. I grew up in India, so I did my undergrad in mechanical engineering from IIT Bombay, um, then worked in India for a few years, then decided to come to the U.S. like many people do from India, especially with a technical background, do a master's in engineering systems from from MIT. After MIT, I joined Booz Allen Hamilton, which became Booz and Company during that time. Essentially, was doing strategy consulting for a variety of companies in the U.S. and also a few abroad. And right about 2009, I moved to KPMG from Booz because there was an interesting opportunity that opened up in KPMG. Spent a couple of years there, moved into FMC Corporation, which is when I moved from New York to Philadelphia. FMC is a Fortune 500 chemical company with a variety of businesses. So I was head of BizDev for one of their business units. Did that role for about three to four years. And finally, I had enough courage to actually jump ships and start my own company, which was always my dream in the back of my mind. So 2015 is when I decided to kind of leave my glorified life of consulting corporate and became a startup founder and started a company called Yellowdig in education technology that has been running for the last seven years now. Excellent. So consulting to corporate strategy to diving in headfirst and uh, having no assurances of any stable foundation. Sounds like an interesting career path. Uh, yeah, that's the least to say. Yeah, not too many people take that route, but I do believe that a lot of people should take that route if they decide to be an entrepreneur. I'm curious to get into why, but first let's start with Yellowdig. So you mentioned it's an ed tech company. Tell us more about it. So education, you know, we all have been to schools, colleges, universities, even if in a company, we often go through training programs, has been primarily brick and mortar. Like it has been in person, people go to schools, meet their faculties, go through their whole experience and get a degree or whatnot. But it's going through a big disruption right now, especially with COVID, as you can imagine, many courses and programs are increasingly online or hybrid, which is a mix of online and in person. But the digital infrastructure for these online courses and programs, especially the hybrid courses and programs, where you can take the course from anywhere, from any time, is not there. I mean, a lot of these colleges or universities are starting to kind of venture into this online or tech forward era in learning and development. So Yellowdig basically plays into that space. So we have a SaaS platform, like software as a service platform that we license to colleges and universities that creates that connected learning experience for the students, which are often missing, especially for online and hybrid programs. And we work with over 150 colleges and universities, primarily in the U.S., but we do have clients now in some other international markets. So help me understand a little bit more what that means. Could you kind of walk me through an example? 
So the example is, let's say you get accepted into a university, whichever university it is. So the experience today is that you get accepted, you wait for a few months, you show up in campus. And once you show up in campus, you pretty much have to decide what courses you have to take. You probably talk to a few people, maybe you're assigned a mentor or advisor, and then you start taking courses, right? So, but the way you go through that experience is pretty much, it's a physical experience. So you pretty much have to find the people or you have to be lucky enough to meet the people who can help you to be successful in that environment. Mm -hmm. And that was okay for probably a hundred years because that was how education was designed in the U.S., But fast forward today, a lot of these colleges or universities are offering online and hybrid programs where students are increasingly relying on their online offering to actually get their courses started. So you can pretty much take some sort of a entry-level course from one university, transfer the credits to another school, and then go there and then find your way. But the digital infrastructure, so what Yellowdick does is that it creates that digital space. So imagine having a Facebook-like forum for your college, it's not as simple as Facebook, where just that you can go and find the people you need to find and naturally meet people and get to know your peer group, get to know your instructors, get to know your alumni who might be able to help you find a job, start to build those relationships in an online environment, which is protected, which is not open like Facebook, which is kind of offered by the school. And the school designed this experience so that students can, even before they step into the campus, even they are, let's say they're doing it in person, they can start building those relationships way before. They can start to discuss, ask questions, find out which courses they want to take, kind of get to know people they want to do projects with. And when they're on campus, you know, again, they can maintain their digital connectivity or the experience and build around their physical experience. So the digital experience or the digital campus becomes another value proposition for them to kind of really get more value out of it, right? Because most students live online, right? We we are always on their phones. Why are we not talking to our peer group who potentially can be a lot more valuable down the path? So Yellowdick provides, so we create that environment. So we have a software which the universities use to customize it and create that environment Mm -hmm. so that students can build those relationships at every aspect of their life. So even before they come to campus, when they come to campus, they can create clubs and they also can get to know their peer group in the courses. So we also power the courses using our platform so that it doesn't become just a knowledge transfer, but actually an opportunity for the students to get to know one another, discuss topics that they care about and basically learn more and better. So this environment is missing today and which is one of our, I would say, one of the first companies which we are creating this environment and now we have, you know, we are working with some of the top universities in this country to make that happen. And I I believe we are just on the start of this revolution because 10 years down the line, I think the online environment is going to be as important to the physical campuses that, you know, students go to. And how did you think of this or come up with the idea? So, you know, like any business, we started small. You know, we didn't want to go and say that we are going to create a digital campus because it was a big problem for us to solve. So we started with courses. The first idea that we had is that as online courses were starting to be growing, starting in 2015, 16, there was a lack of connectivity, you know, between the students because, you know, just sitting in a classroom, you only meet them once or twice a week, not enough. So we created that platform, which essentially helps them to connect with their peer group, connect with their professors 24-7 and kind of really make learning a lot more engaging. That was the first product we launched in the market in 2015. And then 2019, when we realized that the opportunity was bigger than just building those communities in those courses, we kind of launched our next generation platform in 2019. And that's kind of the vision that I explained to you, which kind of engages the students across the life cycle, not only the courses. 
And are you seeing enhanced outcomes? And if so, how are you measuring them? So, yes. So that's a big deal in education because, you know, we, we can be in Facebook and spend hours without any benefit and nobody will question it. But sure. in education, people do ask, ask like, hey, well, did it really improve your grades? Or So there are three big outcomes that we look at. One outcome is around deeper learning because education by definition is an area where you want to learn more. So if you are more connected with your peer group, it leads to much more engaged learning environments where you're not just a receiver of information, but you're actually proactively discussing questions or discussing topics, which happens on our platform. So deeper learning is something we measure. There are various ways we measure that outcome, but we have shown that it improves grades for the students, for example, when you use our platform versus not using it. The second is pure efficiency gain, which is faculty often spend a lot of time to actually interact with students. Like if you know about faculty office hours, yeah. you kind of get to see somebody once a week. You have to sit in those offices and you have to schedule around. It's a very messy business. Like everybody loses time. And students have to wait outside, wait in line. Exactly. Or maybe nobody will show up. Yeah. Like faculty sitting there and nobody, just, I mean, that happens all the time. So nobody likes it essentially. On our platform, faculty office hours is basically asynchronous. Like you can talk to your faculty whenever you want and they will get a response whenever they have time. So it's a very efficient way. So we save time for faculties and various other ways we save time. And the final is persistence, which is a lot of these institutions suffer from students who are essentially dropping out. You know, you sign up with a program, you spend a year, and then you kind of decided to move on because you found something else. That is a big problem. Oh, interesting. I, I wasn't aware of that. Oh, it, it's a huge problem in the U.S. Like one third of the undergrads who get into colleges and universities in the U.S. do not graduate even after six years. Oh, wow. I had no idea. So imagine you're spending a couple of trillion dollars in higher education in the U.S. and one third of that is basically wasted. All the students who are not finishing the programs, if you don't finish... You essentially don't get any value out of your degrees or whatever you're pursuing. So it's a huge problem. And there is a lot of research and we have shown that like if you have more connectivity, people like to be connected with others. Like if you have more relationships with your peer group, with your faculty, with your administrators, you're much more likely to stick around and complete whatever you have started. So we see huge improvements in persistence uh, when they start using our platform. That's interesting because one, I wouldn't have thought that the dropout rate was that high. And then two, I would have assumed that the reason was purely based on academic performance, not other drivers like you've just kind of outlined. Yeah, there's a whole list of drivers. Academic is only one portion of it. There are many other reasons people drop out. As simple as actually sometimes people drop out because they just get demotivated. I mean, in this you know economy, sometimes students are going through the program and they kind of feel that they are not going to get a job for whatever reason. And they just say, you know what, I'm not going to pursue this. Maybe I'll just take something else. It happens. And I think that's why kind of having a much more cohesive learning experience is very important for those kind of metrics to improve. That's incredible. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about what it means to be startup CEO. So you quit your well-paying corporate strategy job and say, I'm going to start a company. How did you do it? And kind of tell us your, I guess, the founding story. Well, so you have to be a little bit of um, explorer <laughs> to be able to jump off a very cushion or cushy job and kind of start, you know, start on the ground floor, essentially. But, you know, the TLDR for me is that it's actually a fascinating experience, and I would kind of probably make the case that a lot of people can be very happy in starting a company and growing a company and probably make as much or more money running their own companies as opposed to, you know, being on whatever career they're on. 
And the primary reason a lot of people do not choose the path is because there is a lot of uncertainty for the first two or three years. When you start a company, the first 18 months or 24 months is the most uncertain because there are so many variables at play that A is that, of course, the idea that you have, you do not know whether that idea is going to work. B is that whether even if the idea works, with you will have the right team or the right funding around you to be able to execute on it. It's a big question. And the third question, of course, is yourself as a founder. I think consulting is one of the best professions to pick up a lot of skills around starting a company, but it's still not enough. There are other skills that are needed to be successful, at least in the initial phases of building a company. So with that, I think a lot of people kind of hesitate to jump in. But I feel that if you can survive through the first year or two or three, which I would call it is primarily a learning experience. Mm -hmm. And if you can survive through that and actually create something of value, then after that, it becomes a much more of an iterative experience in terms of, you know, finding the right skills or the right team or the right situations to grow the company. And the other thing I'll say is that, I mean, when we think about starting a company, we think about Facebook, Google, or all these companies, right? We all know the odds are very, very low. So as somebody starting a company, of course, we would want that to be a world-defining company. And if that happens, that's great. That's amazing. But of course, everybody knows it's a very small chance of that happening. But there is a huge middle range that sometimes people don't think enough about, which is if you have enough successful, maybe it'll be good for you overall, better than you know, just having a job essentially, right? So it doesn't have to be that extreme or outcome for you to be kind of happy or successful. There are a variety of ranges possible. So kind of really being cognizant upfront about it, which I would say that I have learned through over the years and I've seen examples of that that made me more comfortable, you know, pursuing this path for the last seven years and I'm kind of doing it more. I mean, I expect to do it more, you know, for a long time is something which is important to kind of having that mindset is important so that if it's clear that, okay, this is what I'm going for and I can figure out a way to survive for the first couple of years, then it gets a lot easier. And worst case scenario, if it doesn't work, I mean, you can always get a job back. <laughs> Entrepreneurship is one of the best experiences, especially in a digital side of things, which is disrupting so many industries. You can get a job back. And I think that experience is going to be quite valuable, especially in the corporate setting. So you mentioned consulting being a good platform and training ground, and you also mentioned it not <laughs> fulfilling everything when it comes to starting your own business. Where does it fall short? Consulting, you know, firstly, the good thing, right? The good thing is that I think it's a tremendous opportunity to build problem-solving skills. You know, as a consultant, you know, I always felt that I've been thrown into problems every, you know, three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, and I literally have to figure out how to solve it. And you're thrown into so many environments, you kind of start to build a, a set of uh, pattern recognition abilities. So that doesn't matter what problem comes in the future, you will, you know, I, I think I felt at least that I could at least structure the problem, think about in a way so that I can, you know, create a solution for it. Like whatever the problem may be, sales, marketing, operations, or whatever area. I think that's a tremendous skill because a lot of corporate jobs do not provide that. Right. If you get into a corporate role where you're building expertise in one area, you may be the expert in supply chain management, but you never have solved problems at a first principle level, which I think a lot of strategy consulting roles especially provide that. Where it fell short for me personally, I would say where I kind of felt is that I was lacking is that it doesn't have the scalability factor, right? Because at the end of the day in consulting, you're selling your time. So if I solve a problem that truly I feel is a great problem. I solve it, I give the solution to the client, and then I probably move on to another project with a different problem. I never had the chance to kind of see that, okay, now if this is a really smart solution, can I really make an impact? 
Sure. And make an impact and actually have a bigger impact and get portion of the value that I create, right? Which is essentially starting a company. You can solve a problem and you scale it. And if there's a right solution, you get value out of it. So I feel that consulting lacks that piece. Unless you are a consultant where you are actually working with a client to scale up that solution and you actually see that benefits of that upside, which is possible, I'm guessing in some models, but I wasn't in that kind of an environment. But that was personally that was missing for me. So I always wanted to do something where I think I can scale it up. That was personally the reason I I felt that I wanted to start a company. Well, you've certainly achieved that. So let's dig into what it means to be a startup CEO. So you've had the business now for seven years, right? You've kind of cleared that scary 18 to 24 month hurdle. What does your day look like now? And what are your responsibilities? It's a great question. So I would say I can explain it in three phases. I mean, startup goes to few phases of development. So in the first couple of years is the first phase. The second phase is that after the few years, when you start to scale, and the third phase is that when you really want to scale the business. So it takes sometimes between two to five years, depending on which industry you're in and how the business is growing. The first couple of years, as you're starting a company, the primary responsibility is to find some sort of a product market fit. And essentially, the question is what you are providing to the marketplace could be a product, could be a service, could be a combination. Is there a buyer for it that they're going to pay for it and see value? And from that point of view, my responsibility that time was more in terms of building the minimum viable product and putting it out there and proactively getting feedback on that product, trying to find customers, whichever way possible, and kind of finding customers and retaining those customers, right? I mean, they're two different things. That was my primary responsibility. It was almost like running solo to a large extent. I did have a very small team at the time, but of course, at that early stage, it's hard to afford a bigger team because without that product market fit, hard to raise capital, hard to hire people, and also hard to kind of generate enough cash to do the thing. So it was more of a solo venture for the first couple of years. I would say that's the hardest phase as an entrepreneur. In our case, what happened is we found a product market fit and then we grew the product to a reasonable size revenue. And then we ran into challenges because we realized that that product wasn't service the market. Then we had to rebuild the product. So that was a journey we went through as a company. And that often happens, by the way. A lot of companies go through a few iterations of the product to find the opportunity that scales. So that was the first phase. Second phase for me was essentially finding capital, seed capital, and finding key team members who are going to support building it. And that phase, my thing was to kind of find out investors who are willing to invest in the company, as well as team members who are going to join. Both are interesting problems in different ways. We can dive into it, like what does it take to kind of actually do that? And right now we are in the scaling phase of the company. In this phase, the primary thing, the three kind of pillars that I focus on, the first pillar is a strategy. Do we have the right strategy in terms of growing the business? The second is people. Do we have the right people as we start to scale the you know, business? Do we are we hiring the right people to be able to take it to the next level? And finally, our third thing is execution, because as we're kind of executing to be able to grow and, you know, different things happen. We ran through COVID right now, then we are in a recessionary environment, so things change. So as a founder, you've got to be able to figure out ways to survive in every environment and grow in every environment. So I think that's kind of what keeps me awake. Excellent. Okay, so you mentioned the second part, which is finding interested investors as well as kind of key team members. As someone that runs and owns a business, how do you think about that? 
So investors are different types of investors you can go after, right? So investors, early stage, friends and family, small angel investors who are essentially wealthy people, probably they have sold a company and they want to invest in a new entrepreneur. And then you have institutional funds, which are traditional VCs who are investing in the next growth company. And then you also have debt funds where you can raise debt capital, like some sort of a loan that you have to pay back eventually. So there are different types of capital available and it depends on the kind of company you're building. So if you're building the next Facebook or next Google, so typically you would want to go to the top tier institutional funds and try to sell your idea and see if they would be interested. But if you're building a company where you need a little bit of capital and you don't think it might be a Google, but it's going to be a pretty large company, then you have a different set of investors that you can go to who are going to essentially write you a check and kind of get you going. And the third option, by the way, is bootstrapping, which is also quite popular, where you may raise a little bit of capital to get going, but you quickly try to raise enough revenue from your customers. And that kind of gives you the initial momentum to build a company. And in that stage, you keep all your equity in the company. In the other stages, you have to negotiate because you're basically selling equity in the business. So there is pros and cons in both approaches. I think that's such an important point to think about the type of company that you want to build, because I think there's a lure, let's call it, of like the new kind of Silicon Valley with like you get all these founders like the WeWork guy. And it's like, OK, let's raise as much money as we can. You get the Elizabeth Holmes of the world. And it's like to me, that's not that's not building a company. <laughs> that's really good PR. So I think it's important that you mention that just because it's you think about upfront. The, the type of business that you want to build. And what what about people? So you mentioned in that kind of like phase two, you really started to kind of like hone in on finding the right key team members. Yeah, no, there's a team members is probably the next biggest challenge. And I'll kind of talk more, but I, I want to make one point about trying to think about what kind of a company you're building. Because the primary message that a lot of people get when they're starting a company is from these popular like tech crunch of the world where, you know, you hear about these big startups being funded like, you know, you raised $100 million or whatever number, right? And that, you know, Series A's are that big these days sometimes. And that becomes like a benchmark. So then you start to think about, okay, I need to be able to have a big enough idea that I can raise that kind of capital and I'm going to be off to the races. And that's the PR side of things, you know, as you're starting a company. The other motivation is that you want to do good for yourself, right? And your investors. So you want to build big enough a company so that everybody can make a lot of money if that's the goal. I mean, typically, that's the goal when you start a company. So what I really want to encourage people to think about is that what is your personal goal in starting a company? And what are your odds of re- you know, reaching that goal? It's quite important. So personal goal is, okay, you want to be you know, financially independent, you want to be running, you know, running your thing that you really enjoy doing, you truly believe in that business, you're passionate about the topic, which is great, the reason you want to stick around. But the odds of success are, if you can build a company which has a good number of customers buying your product and paying you healthy margins, and you think there is a big enough market for you to build a reasonable business, could be like 10, 20, 30 million dollar, 50 million dollar business, or maybe 100 million dollar business, the odds are much higher to that as opposed to building like a $500 billion Facebook because there are probably a thousand of these as opposed to one of that, right? And there's a huge amount of luck involved too, right? As you can imagine, those kind of odds. Luck, timing, winner-take-all type of markets. And your path to get to that point is also much more likely because if you set up yourself with something which is an extreme outcome, 
and you raise money on those expectations and as you start to build it and you can't hit those goals you will be either get out of business you'll be pushed out of business or you have to you know that happens all the time companies get sold out or carved out because the kind of investors you bring in the kind of expectation you have set early on has an implication down the road so really thinking about what your goals are and being realistic about what those are and hitting a goal which is meaningful and measurable and then of course as you are on this journey and if you find an opportunity which is way way on the left field and really big go for it right i mean there's no reason not to go for it but setting that goal up front is going to kind of put you on a path i think is going to be a lot more enjoyable and you're probably going to control your destiny much more than going for the big swing it can actually put you in you know i mean the elizabeth holmes and all those scenarios i think all those situations happen because not because they were bad people i mean that's my belief they were not bad people but they were put into situations where they set certain expectations and raise money on certain like unreasonable goals that they just fell into this kind of vicious cycle which companies can fall into and it's not a good outcome from anybody that's great advice what was your personal goal up front so my goal was, and this was an interesting conversation I had with my ex-manager, because when I first quit my job and his question was, are you sure? Are you <laughs> sure that you want to leave your job, which just pays you pretty, you know, a good way to live a good life, that you want to take this now? And I, I told him two things. I said that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. If I don't do it now, and I was 35 that time, I would never do it because I felt that maybe it will be too late for me. That was one reason I really wanted to pursue that. The other thing was that I kind of said is that I do not know whether my company is going to be successful, but at least it'll give me enough learning so that I can become an entrepreneur or somebody independent down the lane. So I said it's a 15-year goal for me. In that goal, I may start one or two or three companies, but you know, I want to be on that journey because I see myself that as opposed to this. I almost took a big picture decision that time and looked at a variety of ideas and kind of got, I think I got my calling into this idea that I'm working on right now. But I didn't start with an idea. I didn't start with, oh, I want to build a business. I, I kind of really just thought of it as a life decision in terms of where I want to see myself in like 10, 15 years. That's interesting. And particularly interesting that you picked it up from a longer term perspective. So you even though, yes, the first 12, 6, 18 months are definitely the hardest if you're going to start something, you picked it up from like, a, OK, I'm 35 between now and 50. I want to be in business for myself. That's pretty cool. We were going to turn the discussion a little bit to key team members just because I want to get back to that point because I think that's such a critical part of kind of your role as CEO, right? It's like you're only as good as your team and I feel like you were going to kind of share some of your insights there. Yes. So, you know, hiring the initial team is probably the hardest thing also. And because, you know, a company will be also the long-term success depends on the initial small team that you're going to put together because it sets the direction in a certain way. You know, I would say, to be honest, like we went through a few churns, like the first set of team members that I hired, they stayed with me for a couple of years and I hired a second group of people who have actually been with me for the last four or five years. So one of the key lessons is that do not settle. Because when you're starting a company early on, you have only so much of insight about what you need as a CEO of the company. So you may hire somebody and they may or may not work out. And if it doesn't work out, if you're not fully confident it's going to work out, don't settle. Like try to find somebody else who can replace you. It's painful always, but it's better than kind of trying to work with people that you have. Because I think that is something that I've learned is it's important to kind of have a high expectation right from the beginning, even though you have limited things to kind of actually offer in the beginning, right? So I think that's one thing I've seen. The other thing I've seen is that people who tend to do really well in 
startups and you know even also in the growth phase are people who are also deeply invested or vested into the problem that you're solving so for example when you're hiring a technical leader for your product let's say you are a you know business guy who started the company but you need somebody a cto to kind of build a product the key thing to look for is of course technical competence somebody who has done it may not be in a big company like look for smaller company experience because that helps more and you know kind of that's more transferable absolutely but also to what extent they are actually vested into the problem that you're solving because that kind of keeps people around when you know time gets tough and it will get tough so that that dimension is the person market or problem fit is something that we look for uh, especially as we are hiring more people and on the competence side I would say that you know the biggest thing to look for is has somebody done exactly what you're asking them to do. So if you're hiring a CTO and they have been in a big company, they were a VP of some big application in IBM versus somebody else who actually built a product that they shipped and got user feedback and was able to you know iterate around the product to that is much more valuable even though they come with no name background may not have a fancy degree or whatnot i mean that is what is more important so we always look for people and look at their portfolio look at how they code look check their code bases and things like they have done as opposed to what they put on their resumes i think that makes a lot of sense and also i think there is significant value especially from folks that have experience especially in small company environments because usually at least with most startups that i know yeah you can be very well funded but it's still very kind of scrappy and you don't have a 400 person research team every time you have a question that you need an answer to right and like there's just so much i think that goes into kind of building a startup like yours that it's about that kind of like scrappy environment yeah Excellent. I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of the team and the capital structures. And thanks for kind of like walking us through your day to day, because, you know, we hear a lot about kind of founders and CEO of tech companies and everything like that. But it seems from at least from what I'm hearing is very kind of like strategic mission driven, but about a lot of things like the product, getting it into the hands of customers, retaining the customers. I guess I'm curious about one more thing, which is in education in ed tech, it's not the easiest selling environment, right? Because I guess the probably best analogy is like government, right? It's there's a lot of bureaucracy usually in academia. I guess, how do you think about kind of sales and marketing in order to be successful in the long term? Yes. You know, education, healthcare, government, these are the hardest sectors to kind of sell into. There are a lot of regulations in this space. A lot of the buyers are not very tech savvy because they haven't quite used technology. They're not. Total spend of technology in education is less than 2%. Wow. Of the trillions of dollars that is being spent, only 2% goes to any sort of digital spend. 98% is still brick and mortar kind of spend right now. It's crazy right now, honestly. That has to shift. I think that's the opportunity, by the way. Yeah. One person movement in that number is billions and billions of dollars and, and the companies to be formed there. The other good thing about education is, which is also true for healthcare, true for government to an extent, is the LTV, the lifetime value of the contracts are very high, even though it's harder to get into a school or university. But once you prove your product, it works and they like it and they believe in it, they will tend to be your customer for a long time like 10, 15, 20 years. So it's harder to build, but it's a very stable revenue source, which is why a lot of this traditional learning management system companies, which are like Blackboard, Canvas and others, have been in business for like 20 plus years. A lot of them have not really invested as much in innovation lately, but they still will be there because these are well baked into these systems. And it's very hard to make changes, especially in these kind of traditional, once you get into one of the clients and kind of get embedded into their products. So having said that, 
our strategy right from day one, and we knew that it's a harder space to break in, is to essentially create success stories. So we heavily focus on product to make sure that the product really works well and better than other options they have. And efficacy, which is working with the schools to show the impact of the product so that they can self-report and self-publish and do webinars and present in conferences about our product. And the strategy that we have is essentially a snowball strategy, which is... You know, we started with one school, then we had two, then we had three, and then we are kind of almost like rolling it out to more and more schools where they themselves adopt and talk about the product. So that's the strategy we have, which is, I think, what will help us to push the product out to as many schools without spending a huge amount of resources in sales and marketing. Uh, we do have a sales team, we do have a marketing team, but we don't usually put a lot of resources behind it. What we put our resources mostly behind is our product and our client success. I like to say our client success is our biggest sales team mm -hmm. because if they're successful, then the sales team can go and take those stories and kind of share how we are making an impact. And just for our listeners that don't necessarily understand what client success or customer success means, could you just elaborate from an ed tech perspective? Yeah, so in ed tech or any, any other tech company, so once you have a product in the hands of your customer, then there are two pieces. One is that you hope the customer will use your product right <laughs> and actually see the value, right? There's a hope strategy or you actually be much more intentional about it. You do the training, you do the onboarding and you make sure that you check in with them, you know, maybe once or twice a month and make sure they're fine, right? So that's one of the big pieces I've seen a lot of tech companies fail because they have a great product, but they do not have a great client success, like almost like handling your customers to make sure they're successful. And that's an area most successful companies will have a tremendous, and that could be a very big competitive advantage as much as the product. And we have a team there who make sure that we have a training module that each of our customers go through before they start using a product, they get certified on the products. And when they start using it, we actually get the data in the back end and we proactively reach out to them if we see something. For example, somebody is not using the product properly or there's some issues, we proactively reach out to them and try to help them out. We also have a support team, which you know, if anybody reaches out to us, we will kind of get back to them within a certain SLA. And that's very important in education because you know it's a very reference-driven industry where people would want to talk about the products they like and they will promote it versus purely sales. And in some industries are very sales-driven, but this is not so much sales driven, even though sales is important like anything else, but references matter more. I'm so glad you walked through that. And also just in general, the importance of customer success or client success, whatever you want to call it. And these roles tend to vary by the level of technical nature of the software product. But one thing that I've observed, and this is as a buyer, we signed up, I'm not going to use the name of the, the software company, but we signed up for a software. It actually didn't work well for our business. Now, it's not that the product itself didn't work, but they really invested heavily in customer success and such that I walked away from the experience extremely satisfied and happy and more than happy to kind of refer them. It just wasn't a good fit for our business. But because like the whole journey, the customer success team was there with us and I felt like they were just as vested in making sure that we had successful outcomes as them, it made for a good experience overall. So I, I think the fact that you guys are investing there makes a ton of sense. And also I would imagine, curious to hear your thoughts, but education is a small world. I would imagine that people talk. 
Yeah, they do talk a lot. And one bad experience in one school, let's say a few faculties had a bad experience, especially early in the relationship building, can completely kill that account because word do spread pretty fast. You know, people are in social media, they're in Twitter. So if they have a bad experience, <laughs> they'll tweet about it and that might kill the deal for us. So, yeah. Well, excellent. No, thanks for walking us through that because I've always been curious specifically about selling in, in the kind of like education space because I know it's not a small feat. Very good. So, Seanic, I guess the last thing we'd love to kind of like wrap up with two things. One is your advice for anybody in consulting that I guess wants to pursue a, a path into entrepreneurship. And then two, any book recommendations that you might have that have had an impact on your life. Yes. So on the consulting piece, I would say that as human beings, like we tend to overestimate risks and underestimate the upside. And especially as consultants, we get paid sometimes to find all the risks <laughs> and all the issues, right? Here's the 10 reasons we're going to suck. Yeah. That's right. Don't use that mindset to start a company because often if you're in consulting, if you already are in a big firm, you already proven yourself to be quite competent, right? To handle a variety of things, challenging situations. So there's a lot of good that can be applied to entrepreneurship, even though there are a few things to learn, but I think it can be pretty well applied. So taking the plunge is not as bad you know, having a little bit of backup for a couple of years to make sure that you can live through those couple of years, even if there is no income coming through, which might be the case. Uh, but if you have that figured out, I think it is not definitely a bad path to take. Regarding book recommendations, there is one book. Your background is full of books, so I'm <laughs> sure you have just a ton of suggestions. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that's, a, you know, as you see, there's a wallpaper. But, <laughs> but I did read a couple of books. There's one book that comes to my mind, which I would suggest if somebody is starting, especially building a company, it might be applied to somebody who's running an organization as well, is um, by somebody called Frank Slootman. He is the CEO of Snowflake, okay. which, as you know, which is the fastest growing startup, the biggest IPO that happened, I think, a couple of years back, and it's just a massive success in Silicon Valley. He wrote a book about essentially running an efficient organization, especially about as you're scaling a company, what kind of decisions, how to make decisions, how to manage people, how to hire, how to fire, and the entire thing. The name of the book is called Amp It Up. Amp It Up. By Frank Slootman. Definitely a recommendation if you're you know, thinking about starting a company. Okay, excellent. We will add that to the Beyond Consulting Library. And lastly, if our listeners want to learn more about Yellow Dig or learn more about you, where should they look? So our website is yellowdig.co. You know, there's a plenty of examples, case studies. If you want to learn more about us, you can contact us through the website. And if you want to connect with me, the best place would be LinkedIn. Just search my name, Shauna Croy, and LinkedIn, you'll find me, send me a message. And then you've got that like 6 million person TikTok account, right? <laughs> yes. In the works. <laughs> <laughs> so that's yellowdig.co, or you can look up Seanak, S-H-A-U-N-A-K, Roy, R-O-Y, on LinkedIn. And then for those of you listening for the first time, please make sure to subscribe either on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon. And if you're interested in transcripts or past episodes, you can always check out beyondconsulting.info. And then lastly, if you want to get in touch with anybody at ECA, it's going to be eca-partners.com. You can look us up. All of our emails are there right on the website. Seanic, thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much. For everyone else, look forward to speaking with you next week. 